So for this uh, whole session today, I wanted to share with you a practice that I'm paying a lot of attention to these days. And um, I think it's really a helpful practice, which I've, I've known about for a very long time, but it's really sort of come alive in the last few months for me. <clears throat> and it's a practice called mindfulness of mind. Now, those of you who've been practicing before um, and may know a little bit about the teachings know that the practice of meditation uh, that we do in our tradition, there's lots of different traditions of meditation, <coughs> comes from a, a Pali Canon. The Pali Canon is the uh, text of the Buddha's teachings. And there's a, uh, his discourses, his teachings are called suttas, S-U-T-T-A. And this particular sutta, and the, the Pali Canon is, uh, you know, it's a pretty hefty set of volumes. Um, this particular sutta is called the Satipatthana Sutta, which means the establishment of mindfulness. And it's kind of the source, uh, the source text of all of these teachings on meditation. So it, they're very worthwhile paying attention to because we can get some pretty um, mistaken ideas about what meditation is and isn't. And in the sutta, he talks about uh, four establishments of mindfulness. And the first one is establishing mindfulness of the body. So I'd like you to just pay attention. So let's do a little bit of practice while I'm speaking to you. So let's just pay attention to what your, what your posture is like, which is part of paying attention to the body. And what's recommended is that you find a posture that is alert and relaxed. So if you're sitting in a chair, that means that to be alert, it's helpful not to lean back into the chair. Because what happens when we do that is our energy gets drained. And over the period of time that we're together, you'll find that your energy starts to really wane and you get sleepy. So it's helpful, unless you have a medical condition, uh, to not have your shoulders on the back of the chair, but to allow your back to be independent. And in a way, our spine is our center, the center column of our whole life, really, because we live in the body. And if the, if the back isn't strong, we get a lot of weaknesses in the rest of the body. But also for meditative purposes, it really, um, it really establishes for us a sense of dignity. And dignity is really important in meditation because it, the Buddha called this a path that ennobles, makes us noble. So we start by establishing a template of nobility in the body. So if you make your spine erect without it being overstretched, but just uh, upright, keeping it upright. And noticing how your shoulders are, because we tend to scrunch our shoulders up when we are in tension. So it's really a big relief to be 
be aware of the shoulders and allow them to uh, relax. If you're on a cushion, the shoulders and the spine, it's the same instruction, but be sure that you have a good stable base that's easy so that there's nothing that you have to hold up. I find if I try to do half lotus um, for a long time that my ankles get tired. So I, I use what's called the Burmese position, which is both legs flat on the cushion. But you can do whatever works for you and whatever feels comfortable. Just something that you can maintain over a you know, hefty period of time but so that you have a triangular and stable base. If you're on a cushion, if you're on a chair, to have your feet flat on the floor is really also very grounding, just as the triangular base is grounding for the um, thing. If you, if you need a cushion so that your feet reach the floor, that's okay. But just have them flat, not, not crossed. And it's helpful to pay attention to the back of the neck because that's one of the places that gets tired. So if you um, have a slight uh, tuck to your chin so that the, the top of the crown of the head is the highest point in the body, that will release the back of the neck and it won't get tired. Your eyes can be open or closed if they're open just to have them slightly open so that light comes in and looking about five feet in front of you so that your eyes aren't darting around the room and because the sight is one of the most um, pernicious things in terms of how interested we get in you know, darting. So it's helpful to just have your eyes slightly down. So paying attention to what the body feels like establishing mindfulness is establishing awareness in the present moment of how things are and here we're paying attention to the body and we pay attention without judgment without thinking this is good this is bad I don't like this I don't want that I want this I want more of that I want less of that this needs to go away all of that kind of mental chatter we, we let go of. It's a very habitual thing, so you'll notice that the mind wants to do that over and over and over again. And when it does happen, we don't demonize the mind for that, for producing those thoughts, because it's just habit. But we let them go. We let them go. We notice that they've arisen, and we let them go. We notice they've arisen, and we let them go. And we do so without any extra comment. So the mind, I'm, I'm sorry, so the body is established in a noble and alert and relaxed way. So f hopefully you found a posture that, is, that you can maintain for a while because part of our practice also is stillness. How can we find some place, some moment, some center of stillness right here and right now? and we establish it in the body first so that we understand that in a visceral and experiential way, not in a mental way. And then we pay attention to the breath. And the breath comes in and goes out 
it moves the body. So as the breath moves in, you'll notice perhaps that the belly and the chest rise. I'm sorry, when, the, when it comes in, the, yes, the belly and the chest rise. And when it goes out, the belly and the chest contract. Also, you may notice that as the breath comes in through the nose, you'll notice sensations at the nostrils right at the tip of the lip, the top of the lip. So that's establishing mindfulness in the body as the first foundation. And then there's a, so you can pay attention to that as you're listening, pay attention to your breath. And then there's a second establishment of mindfulness and that is mindfulness of what the Buddha called Vedana or feelings, but not emotions as we're not getting to that yet. The second foundation is that every time the eye sees or the ear hears or the body senses touch or there's a smell in the nostrils or a taste in the mouth or a thought in the mind, every time that happens, what arises with that in our stream of experience is feeling. Feeling of pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. And notice that I didn't say pleasant that we like, unpleasant that we don't like, or neutral that we ignore, but I just said pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral. So those arise, and the Buddha asked us to pay attention to those three experiences that co-arise with all of these sense contacts. And then what I want to bring your attention to today is the third foundation of mindfulness. So you'll notice, well, let me just go back to the feeling tone to start with, Vedana. So right now, you may notice the sound of the air conditioner or the, and the sound of my voice, so you're hearing. And if you pay attention, you'll notice that something, some feeling is co-arising with both of those sounds separately. So when you hear my voice, it may strike you as something pleasant or it may strike you as something unpleasant or neither. When you hear the sound of the air conditioner, also that may be pleasant to some, unpleasant to others, and neutral to others. So what's it like for you? Or the sights in the room, you know, the Buddhas behind me, or the colors in the room, or the light. So we're seeing and something that some feeling of pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral arises. So we can notice that. And, and again, our instructions are always to notice these things without commentary or analysis or um, without liking, disliking, wanting more, wanting less. Just so our meditative practice is simply to notice. And um, please feel free to sit down, Trina. And uh, so that's the second foundation. And the third foundation of mindfulness is what I really want to 
want us to pay attention to today is the mind. So for those of you who are beginners, it's perfectly fine for you to stay in the awareness of the body. And, but if you'd like to also kind of venture into these other foundations, that's perfectly fine too. It's not as if one is an advanced practice and one is not. These are human experiences that we're having all the time that we can pay attention to in the present moment. So this third foundation that the Buddha established is the foundation of the mind. And this is a very important aspect of meditation. Because in another teaching, the Buddha said that with our minds we make the world. With our minds we make the world. So whatever we think, our thoughts shape the mind. So if we think a negative thought, the mind gets shaped by that. If we think a positive thought, the mind gets shaped by that. And then however we see, however the mind is shaped, that's how we see the world. And therefore our world is composed of how we, the attitude, the mental attitude that we bring to every experience. And I'm sure you've seen that before. I'm sure you've noticed that if you wake up in a grumpy mood, the whole day seems grumpy. People talk to you and you're annoyed, right? Somebody says something and your mind goes off. The phone rings and you don't want to talk to anybody, right? If you wake up in a, in a non-grumpy mood, in a kind of happy mood, phone rings and you think, oh, who's that? Let's, let's see who that is, right? Or somebody says something that might have been agitating or annoying the day before, but somehow it's okay. You can just kind of let it roll off your back. So if you pay attention to the mind, you begin to learn, in a way, the driver of your life. And these moods of the mind are what the Buddha pointed to as the, um, the seminal practice in shifting how our lives unfold. So this practice of mindfulness itself, every moment that we are aware, that we're here, that we know what is happening now in this moment in a visceral and experiential way without the overlay of our opinions, our thoughts, our ideas. We've, those of you who've experienced mindfulness know that that is, a, that is a moment of freedom when we are not caught by conditions, when we're not thinking that in order for me to be happy, this has to happen, that has to happen, that has to happen, that has to not happen. But we're simply receiving experience 
just as it is and working not with trying to shift experience outside of us but actually looking at our relationship to experience. This is really key in all of our studies and our practice. This is a key, key, key point. So this awareness of mind and mind states becomes a transformative, life-affirming and life-transforming path. When we understand the mind, we understand how we make the world. So it's always helpful when we sit down to practice that we check in. First we check in on our intention. Why are we practicing? Why are we here? And if you're here because you need a little relief from this life, this modern 21st century life that is stressing everybody out, that's perfectly fine. And you should also know that there is even further and deeper freedom that is possible. That if we practice this mindfulness practice diligently and according to the instructions, not as we would like to do it, but as the instructions are, that there's a real possibility of freedom. So pay attention to your intention, because whatever your intention is, that will shape your mind. <laughs> and if your mind is shaped, however your mind is shaped, that's what you will receive. So paying attention to intention, I'm going to give you, a, a, I'm going to shut up for a moment and let you just reflect. What is my intention for being here? And then what I'd like you to do is to pay attention or become aware or mindful of your state of mind right now. Is it a mind filled with sense desire? 
a mind filled with anger or fear, a confused mind, a clear mind, a focused or concentrated mind, or a distracted mind. And to meet this mind free of judgment, free of decision-making, or commentary. Because when we can meet the mind states in that way, we're actually stepping out of them and we are not weighed down by them. They are not who we are. They are simply adventitious experiences coming and going. But what happens is we tend to take these mind states and we think this is who I am. I'm angry. I'm sad. I'm happy. So can you find this mind, these mind states that you have right now? Actually without identifying with it, without grasping at it, but simply knowing it. And then we simply notice the mind state and allow it to go in a, come and go in awareness. You need some alertness for this. So pay attention to your posture and pay attention to the energy of the mind. So just as we would simply notice the weather outside, we can notice the weather inside. What's it like? Okay, so let's come back now to the breath. And what I'd like you to do, I'm gonna pay, I'm gonna ask you to just pay attention to the breath now. Coming and going at the nostrils or at the belly or at the chest. And when you feel somewhat settled and focused and concentrated, you can pay attention to whatever mind state is arising. But really, what I'll do is I'll give you 15 minutes and I'll just ring the bell very lightly to see if at that point you can pay attention to a mind state. So let your attention just return to the breath even when 
thoughts or emotions or sensations arise, just returning to the sensations of the breath as it moves in and out of the body. So if you feel as if the mind is somewhat focused and uh, relatively relaxed and calm, see if you can open to um, broadening your awareness to notice the state of mind. Is it calm, energetic, tired? agitated, clear, confused, wide, narrow. What's the quality of the mind? And see if you can simply open to it with mindfulness, allowing the state of mind to reveal itself to you. letting go of any judgment that you may have about it. So you may prefer a clear to a confused or calm to agitated. But see if you can simply open to whatever is true about the state of the mind. And if you feel judgment about the mind state, you can simply return to the breath for a moment, letting go again of the judgment until you're ready to see it again. And just notice any moment in which you know what's happening in the mind and appreciate that. That's a moment of waking up. And if you feel confused about what you're feeling or what the mind state is, just notice the state of confusion without judgment, without analysis. Just what's it like for the mind to be confused? And if there's a mind state that you feel it's too difficult to be with it, you can come right back to the breath. This is a gentle and kind practice. Allow the awareness to be as broad as it can possibly be to include this mind state.
Before we uh, do a little bit of stretching, are there any questions about that? I know that was a lot of information. Um, but is there, are there any questions about the instructions? Yeah, so the question was whether it's different from the noting practice where you're noting what's happening. You can use noting with it, uh, but it's, it's probably more helpful to simply be in the mind state itself and to, to get the feeling of what it feels like in the body, what the story is in the mind, what the emotions are, just to, uh, to feel whatever is happening. Um, because when we note, we may be just distancing ourselves a little bit from that mind state, and it's really helpful to see what it's like to be aware of the mind state without being caught in it. So, so my answer is yes and no. If you, if you want to use the noting practice, you can with it, and it may be helpful to see what it would be like to not use the noting practice, to just simply be in a mind state of anger. What does that actually feel like? Because eventually what you want to see is what does a wholesome mind state feel like? Is it more peaceful than an unwholesome mind state? Right? What does a peaceful or wholesome mind state feel like? What does generosity feel like? What does joy feel like? Because when we do that and simply note it and we're simply aware of it without either being caught in in the identity of it, or judging it, we're, we're teaching the mind the habit by simply knowing. So we're shaping the mind by simply knowing what it's like to be in those mind states. So that we're not saying, oh, I should be generous, I shouldn't be stingy. You're just noting what's it, you're just noticing what it's like in the whole mind-body process when there's a feeling of generosity, when there's a mind state of openness and generosity. What's it like when there's a mind state of, you can even see my body starting to, you know, just the thought of it. So, it, so that's, that's where we're actually going with it, is you're going to eventually notice, oh, yeah, when there's restlessness in the body or in the mind, this is what it feels like. And so there's a natural proclivity then towards calm without having to say, I should be, right? Which doesn't usually help anyway, right? So how do we discipline the mind? We do it through the visceral and the experiential rather than the rational. So you're asking about particular mind states and ways of kind of identifying them. So let me tell you what the Buddha said. Does that, that may be more helpful than what I think. <laughs> he says, um, these are his direct instructions. The meditator knows a lustful mind to be lustful and a mind without lust to be without lust. She knows an angry mind to be angry and a mind without anger to be without anger. He knows a deluded mind to be deluded 
and a mind without delusion to be without delusion. So he just used he, but I'm modifying that. She knows a contracted mind to be contracted and a distracted mind to be distracted. He knows a great mind to be great and a narrow mind to be narrow, a surpassable mind to be surpassable. This is a technical thing and an unsurpassable mind to be unsurpassable. He's really referring to jhanas and, and deep absorption of the mind and an unconcentrated mind to be unconcentrated, a concentrated mind to be concentrated. He knows, she knows a liberated mind to be liberated and, and an unliberated mind to be unliberated. So there are eight categories, lustful, angry, deluded, contracted on one side, and great, unsurpassable, concentrated, and liberated on the other. So what he's really kind of pointing to is the, um, the mind states of um, greatness and surpassability and concentrated, etc that we can actually know what it feels, and liberated, we can actually know what it feels like for the mind to be free if, we, if we're paying attention. Because we have those moments, right? So if we, if we know what it feels like for a liberated mind to be free, that shapes the mind, to be liberated, that shapes the mind. If we know what an angry mind feels like, that shapes the mind. And you notice that he said with, ang with the three defilements of greed, hatred, and delusion, or lust, anger, and um, delusion, that it, you notice what it's like with it, and you notice the mind without it. So when lust, anger, and delusion are present, and when lust, anger, and delusion are absent. So there's a lot that you can begin to know about how it feels for these different mind states to pervade the mind-body process. About the same topic, I was trying to um, notice what was my mind state and answer that question. And my ears are popping, so I'm talking about it. Anyway, um, I'm trying to notice my mind state, and I thought my mind was really stimulated because I just spent 45 minutes in this conversation just before I got here. So I thought that was my mind state. I tried to feel like what was the mood that was coloring my mind state to try to understand that. And I couldn't really notice anything, so I thought maybe I'm just sort of a little neutral. And I thought, is that a mood that I can have? Or, and then I realized I wanted to be equanimous, and I thought, well, maybe I am equanimous. <laughs> so that's how I just in creating that. So, I couldn't really observe that deeper level. Okay, so that's a mind that's confused. Right? Because there's a, there's a little confusion, like, what's going on here? So at that point, you could just notice a what, what's it like for the mind to be confused. It's not like we want to, like, find something, but just notice how it is. So if the mind is confused, can you be with a confused mind without thinking, oh, I shouldn't be confused, I should really clarify this, this is, this is not good. Yeah, so, so notice that, right? So just notice what it's like now for the mind to feel this isn't satisfactory, right? First it's confused, and then when, it's, when it notices it's confused, instead of just saying, oh, this is confusion, it says, this is not satisfactory. We don't like, satis we don't like confusion. We want something, we want clarity, we want... So 
so that's you know that's a that's a state of mind too, and so there's this hunger for a particular way of being, and good luck with trying to make the mind do what you want it to do, right? You know, I want the mind to be clear and generous and kind and calm and liberated and unsurpassed and wise, <laughs> without anger, without oh yeah. But you know, meanwhile, it's just confused. Right. So, and then, and then, when you're thinking that, how about the wanting mind? So that's the wanting mind that wants the mind to be some other way, and there may be some aversion. So there's also the aversive mind. So there are all kinds of mind states that are, you know, coming in, and they come in, but they come and go. They come and go. They come and go, and just notice how we grab one. Right, so so there was confusion, and then desire. Maybe confusion, aversion, and desire. And but they they come and go unnoticed, and so they you know because we're not relating to them in a mindful way, they take over. So that's a really great question. So the the question was, what's the difference between wanting an equanimous mind and having the intention to find freedom? So even in the question, you can feel it. I think that there's there's an underlying intention that drives us, right? So if we have an intention for freedom, then we go towards it, right? We we try to employ practices that will set us free. Right. If all, if we want an equanimous mind, then we're struggling with the mind that isn't equanimous. See, so freedom includes the mind that's equanimous and the mind that's not equanimous. So right now, my mind is not equanimous. It, I don't need the mind to be equanimous to have some self-image of being free. I'm free in the context of the mind that's not equanimous, right? So, and it's a little tricky because, of course, equanimity is a quality of a free mind. But the mind isn't always equanimous, so it's a little, you know, it's a little tricky. It's a little um, uh, interdependent, shall we say? In that, with with that particular quality of mind, um, so you can have an have an intention for equanimity, right, and not be equanimous and be okay with that, right? To prefer something, like I prefer it when it's cooler, and I'm not liking it and I'm hating this, and. Can I be equanimous with the mind that's kind of complaining? Can that be okay? It's it's it kind of it's like one of those disappearing mirrors in a circus, right? You know, where it just keeps reflecting on itself. So, last question, and then we'll take a break. So 
So you said you have two mind states, inspiration and fear, and you said, which was fine. And then you said, and what's missing is equanimity, right? Safety. Or safety. So, uh, so, so or, or safety or peace. So how are you with the fear? So what does that mean to you, befriending fear? To be with it in my body. To be with it in your body. To not resist it. To not create storylines. Story so far, so good. <laughs> so, so here's what I think is implied in your question, is how do I get rid of it? Right? Because it's an uncomfortable mind state. Fear is an uncomfortable mind state. It's inhibit. Okay, so you went from I can't take positive action to it's inhibiting. So just notice how there are also stories about what it's like that really may or may not be true when you check it out experientially. So we can be fearful and still take action. But we have a story in the mind that, oh, because I'm afraid I can't do anything. I'm feeling paralyzed. Okay, so what's it like to feel paralyzed? Right? It, it feels tight, maybe it feels draining, it may feel as if there's no energy. So can that be okay? Can that be okay? And I, you know, and I know that it's, it's not an easy practice. It's not like we say, okay, so be with it. And I, I don't even like that phrase of being with it because it feels to people as if being with it means that there's nothing that can be done, that we're just going to be with it, and then everything is going to be okay. Well, we can be with it, and everything isn't going to be okay, right? And, but can we be okay with that? And, and to notice what it's, what, you know, so we say, okay, so I don't want to have any resistance. So you're having resistance to your resistance, right? So there may be resistance there. So can you simply know what it's like to be in that state of resistance of, I don't like this fear, I don't want to be afraid. Of course you don't want to be afraid. It's an unpleasant experience. But can you simply know that because it's not who you are? It's a coming and going state. It's not who you are. And I think that's like a real key to understanding how to work with, I rather say work with, rather than be with, because what we're working on is not a simple kind of passive, protoplasmic kind of attitude to, you know, I'm just this piece of protoplasm that's having stuff happening all the time, but that we're actually looking at our relationship to what's arising and passing away and how we grasp it so that it becomes something permanent rather than something that's fluid. So the phrase I like to use for myself is, how much I like to freeze what is forever flowing. And, if I, and when I do that, I have the immediate image of a river flowing and ice on top of it, right? That I want to make ice out of the river. So if it's coming and going, it's not who I am. It's a, it's a temporary condition that 
is begging me for attention and in which I can more deeply know these moods of mind and states of mind that take me over from time to time when I'm not aware. So the fear comes in and all of the stories about it and all of the feelings in the body and you're, you're, in, you're completely entitled to all of those, right? Fear is a difficult mind state. And yet, there's a way of relating to it, right? So the mind state's there. The pushing away of it is not going to help because it's there. And we're also not saying, oh, come on in fear, I really want it. But we're just seeing, oh, fear is here. And what is my relationship to it? Oh, I don't want it here. I, I hate it. I, you know, this is terrible. But I'm always like this. Whatever your story is, noticing that. And can you let that go and simply be with the physical sensations, the emotions, and the knowing of it, and watching it, and it will come and go. Even if it comes back, it will come again, but it will go again. It will come again and go again, come again and go again. I promise you that. It's not a per nothing is permanent in this life. So, so when we have that different relationship, then everything changes. Everything changes. And, and what's key is this ability to be here, to be present, to be mindful of what's happening. That's the key. That's, and you know, it's, it's not something that we're trained to do as children. So in the beginning, it feels very foreign and almost counterintuitive. So the Buddha always described his teachings as going against the stream because it feels counterintuitive because it's so habitual to be afraid of the fear, to hate the fear, to want to push the fear away. So you can't, it's, there's no blame in that. But then to know there's a possibility of an embracing that doesn't require the fear to go away. That's kind of tricky. Because of course we want it to go away. It doesn't require it to go away. There's a difference in that. Right? So the practice of awareness has a kind of simpli simplicity to it. And I think that sometimes that is mistaken for a lack of depth. That in our culture and in our age, we confuse uh, sophistication and complexity with profundity. So sometimes when we hear the teachings and we hear the instructions, it's like, <laughs> what's the big deal? So, you know, I watch my breath for, you know, 45 minutes. And, you know, so, and then what? Right, and there's a wonderful New Yorker magazine cartoon where there's an old monk and there's a young monk and they're sitting, you know, in their shawls or their robes and the young monk is looking up at the old monk and saying, what happens next? And the old monk says, nothing. <laughs> <laughs> and in a way, it's like that, you know. But the question is, uh, what rest have you given your mind and your heart 
forget about our bodies. I mean, we're just, we're so brutal with them in terms of not really offering enough rest and relaxation. But if you look at what we do with the bodies, it's amazing what we do to the mind. It's constantly working, constantly working, constantly working, this, that. It, and, you know, part of it is a survival thing, right? We're hardwired for survival, you know, which is how we've gotten here after all these billions of years. We, we're still here, barely, when you look at the state of the planet, but that's a whole other story. And so we've, we've been hardwired to notice threats. So we're constantly scanning the horizon to see what's threatening. And if you look outside, you'll notice that through that simple hardwiring of noticing and scan scanning and noticing for threats, we have this has been built, this whole infrastructure that we've built, if you look at it, if you look at New York City and the whole world and you know what the mind has wrought, it's really in response to, you know, let's find a place to shelter from the storm so that we'll survive it. Let's find a way to um, make our hunting and gathering easier. You know, we've, we've been over time evolving ways of responding to what we've perceived as threats. And so that's been, uh, that's a hangover. We have that, you know, it's like we have an appendix that we don't use anymore. This, uh, this, this scanning the horizon constantly for threats is no longer really applicable. Yes, we need safety, as you were saying. And so we do, you know, we, we, we know there are certain ways that we protect this body and we, we don't uh, put it in situations where it's likely to be harmed. But our level of alert is way beyond what is necessary. And so we've become more and more and more and more complex in our response to what we perceive as threats. And so even that has now become almost like a hard wiring, thinking that complexity is what we need to protect us. And then awareness invites us in back to simplicity. What's it like right now? So just answer that question for yourself right now. You know, we're in this environment, it's probably safe, right? From most physical threats, from all physical threats, I dare say. You know, maybe not free from all emotional threats because we bump up against each other. We're human beings. We impinge on each other's senses. And yet, sim the simplicity of awareness is in a way the deepest protection that we can possibly have for our psyches, for our emotions, and for our bodies. But in the beginning, we don't believe that. Because the, the rational mind says, 
that's not what I've learned. That's not, what's tr that's not what I think is true. So in order for us to really believe that, we have to practice. We have to try it out. And that was the Buddha's theme always, ehipasiko, come and see for yourself. That you will not, you're, you're not asked to believe anything when you come here. What you are asked to do is to listen to the instructions and to follow them and see for yourself whether all of the teachings that are, sim are really pointing out instructions, they are not, here's what's true and this is what you need to believe, but they're pointing out to, here's where you look to find the truth. Here's where you look, right? You've been looking here, there, and everywhere, and what's happened is that the mind has made up a tremendous amount of stories about what's happening as part of this hardwiring for survival. So the Buddha talked about, um, he gave a teaching on the second arrow, which he called the second arrow, in which he said, so if a man is hurt, he used men all the time, he didn't use women. So if a man is hurt by an arrow, if, he, if he's uh, pierced by an arrow, does that hurt? And as it is in all of these suttas, the, Buddha, the, the, the disciples say, yes, Lord, yes, it does hurt, absolutely. They agree with him. And then he says, so if he's pierced by a second arrow, would that also hurt? He said, well, it's probably going to hurt even more. He said, well, that's what we do to ourselves all the time. So we're walking down the street and we trip, right? So what happens? We're a little embarrassed, right? But what does the mind do? It comes right in and it says, you're a klutz. You've always been a klutz. You will always be a klutz. What's wrong with you? You shouldn't have been walking so fast. It's, it's what you're doing to yourself. You've been doing this to yourself now for how many years? As long as you've been alive. What, you, know, you need to slow down. What, you should have been looking where you were going. What's wrong with you? So all that happened was something tripped you up. And that may have not even been that painful. It may have just been a little bit embarrassing. But the story that comes into the mind that then judges it, says it's wrong, says it shouldn't have happened, says something else should have been happening, says something else should be happening right now, and goes all the way back to when you were born and, you know, how did I get this way? My mother, you know, it's because my mother told me I was no good or my father told me this. Or I, and so we get these stories that are the second arrow. And what meditation is pointing us back to is this simplicity where if we're hurt by the first arrow, we simply know what we need to do with the first arrow and we don't add the second arrow to it. We don't add the beating of our chests, the you know, beating ourselves up on the head or doing whatever you know, the normal, usual storytelling that the mind does. So this awareness of mind states and first awareness of the body and then awareness of feelings and then awareness of the mind states begins to point us to the simplicity of practice that allows us to see exactly what is happening and not only what is happening but it also allows us to see the relationship to what is happening which as I said before is the key to not creating 
the second arrow. So a tripping up is a tripping up. It doesn't have to do with what your mother told you when you were five years old, right? It's just what happens. And can we be with that simplicity and can we allow the mind to rest in that simplicity rather than the infrastructure of the mind that is constantly being invoked as a way of survival. Because that second arrow, that story, is also a kind of way that we've started to protect ourselves because we've, there's, there's something in us that says if we, can, if we know what happened in the past and we can predict what happens in the future, we'll be safe. But in fact, the past is gone and the future hasn't happened yet, so there's no way we can predict the future. We can have a best guess, but we can't predict it. But the mind is constantly giving us that complexity and that sophistication that says that's what we need for survival. So mindfulness brings us back to this simplicity. This, and in a way, it gives us freedom to choose the relationship that we are going to have with whatever is happening in this moment. Because if we're lost in thought about the past or lost in thought about the future, our decision-making is hindered. The choice that we have in front of us is, is blocked. So that simplicity gets lost immediately as the mind kicks in with the second arrow. And awareness, mindfulness, keeps bringing us back over and over and over and over again. And those of you who've been practicing for a while know that moment of freedom when something happens in the mind or in the body or in the heart and one simply knows it. So it's a two-way street of freedom. So that moment of simply knowing is a moment of freedom. And it's, a, it's also giving back freedom to the mind-body process to do what it needs to do. This is very intelligent. And yet the mind keeps jumping in with a kind of insecurity about the intelligence of the body-mind process. So awareness returns that intelligence because once we are aware, we know what needs to be done. It's like the body, when it gets hurt, it heals itself. The body doesn't say, okay, guys, what are we going to do? It heals itself most of the time. You know, I'm not talking about major things, but even sometimes in major things, the body does heal itself. You know, so we may need to go to a doctor and get advice and all of that. But if you get cut, right, you may put something on it so it doesn't get infected. But basically, you're not sitting there saying, heal, heal, heal. The body is just doing it. And if we pay attention with kindness, it's been proven, if we pay attention with kindness to a cut, it heals faster. If we pay attention with aversion, it heals slower. They've, they've made studies on that. 
So the, the relationship of the mind and the relationship of, um, and, and our relationship to the mind states, the relationship of the mind to the body and the relationship to the mind states makes a huge difference. So we're in that simplicity and we're allowing what happens. So we're in the simplicity and freedom and that freedom is also allowing the freedom of whatever needs to happen to happen. We're not cutting it off. So this practice of training the mind is your best ally. And the, when I say training of the mind, I don't mean that we're intervening when we see what's true, but that we're actually just knowing what's true and having the faith and confidence in that. That that shift of relationship in which we simply know what's happening rather than judging it, thinking that we know better or that it shouldn't have happened or how it should happen or what should be here, that just that simple knowing is a profound shift of relationship that brings freedom. And as I said, it's hard to believe in the beginning because it feels like, eh, you know, I need something a little bit more juicy to happen here. So the Dalai Lama said, when your mind is trained in self-discipline, even if you are surrounded by hostile forces, your peace of mind will hardly be disturbed. On the other hand, your mental peace and calm can easily be disrupted by your own negative thoughts and emotions. The real enemy is within, not without. So that's what this practice is pointing us back to. What is happening internally will determine the quality of your life in many ways. The world is always going to be the world. It's just how it is. And of course, it doesn't mean that we're not active in uh, working with injustice. It doesn't mean that we're not active in making decisions about our lives, about how to live a wholesome life versus how to, uh, uh, and, and moving out of whatever is unwholesome. It doesn't mean we're not making decisions. It doesn't mean we're being passive. But what it means is that we're being nonviolent in our way of observing what is true in order to respond. And when we can bring that kind of awareness and mindfulness and nonviolence of heart to our experience, everything opens to us. The, the world becomes a, a, a more colorful array of possibilities. We're not stuck and in, the, in a narrow mind that can only see one possibility. And usually that possibility involves being aversive to whatever is true and thinking that it needs to, something else needs to happen externally. And it's a tricky place. It's a very tricky place because we don't want to um, 
say, oh, everything is all right, the world is just as it is, and I, there's nothing I can do about it. And yet there's also a place where a certain amount of acceptance needs to begin, needs to happen in the beginning so that the mind can be calm and the heart can be at rest and at ease. And if the mind is calm and the heart is at rest and at ease, then the response that we have to whatever is happening will be appropriate. And as the Zen master said when asked, what is Zen? What is meditation? What is this Buddha Dharma? He said appropriate response. And it's the whole game, appropriate response. And if you, if you really take that in, it covers a very wide margin, a very wide field of our lives. How are we responding to what is internal? And how are we responding to what is external? Because how we respond it will, is what will determine the quality of our lives. So I'll just um, close with this, with the, what the Buddha said about this. He said, we are what we think. All that we are arises with our thoughts. Our life is shaped by our mind. We become what we think. With our thoughts, we make the world. Speak or act with an impure mind and trouble will follow you as the wheels of a cart follow the oxen that draw it. Our life is shaped by the mind. We become what we think. Joy follows a pure thought like a shadow that never ceases. Quote, he was angry with me. He attacked me. He defeated me. He robbed me. Those who dwell on such thoughts will never be free from hatred. Quote, he was angry with me, he attacked me, he defeated me, he robbed me. Those who do not dwell on such thoughts will only become free from hatred. For hatred never put an end to hatred, love alone can. This is an unalterable law. People forget that their lives will end soon. For those who remember, quarrels come to an end. As, and I've uh, left something out. As the strongest wind mind cannot, I'm sorry, as the strongest wind cannot shake a mountain, Mara cannot shape those who are self-disciplined and full of faith. How can a troubled mind understand the way? Your worst enemy cannot harm you as much as your own thoughts unguarded. But once mastered, no one can help you as much, not even your father or your mother. That's pretty heavy, <laughs> right? Because in, in a way, it comes back to us. It comes back to our own personal responsibility. And again, that's a tricky place because we're all connected in this world. And so we have responsibility for each other. But that responsibility starts with ourselves. Because if we're not together, if we're not um, clear with kind hearts, kind and ethical hearts, then we're going to make a bigger mess.
That's what he's saying here. So if we know our states of mind, we know our emotions, we know our thoughts, and we know them viscerally and deeply and experientially, not an idea of what our thoughts or our feelings or our states of mind are, but we actually have experienced them directly with mindfulness, our relationship shifts. And in that shift of relationship, the whole world changes. So thank you. So I'm happy to hear any questions that you have. Yeah. I love the way that you connect the mindfulness of mind to the second arrow because we all have our individual second arrows that we carry around and punch ourselves with. And the more that we can become conscious of that, when it's coming up, oh, there's that story again. We have the choice of letting it down, letting it go or not. It's putting down, letting the, the, the hot coal drop. It's putting down? Putting down the hot coal. The hot coal. Uh-huh. Or it's like taking out our own internal garbage. The more we can do that, the less garbage we'll have. Our own internal, I'm sorry. For our own internal garbage. Garbage, uh-huh. So the more we take out the garbage, the less we'll have to deal with it. The less we'll have to deal with it. Yeah, and, you know, yes, and um, I think also what is always miraculous to me is that mindfulness heals by itself. So when we notice an unwholesome state of mind, hatred, or greed, or delusion. And we really pay attention to how that is in the body. You know, so let's take aversion. So we're angry. What happens when we're angry? The belly goes tight, shoulders come up, we lean forward, we're ready Right? So there's that response, that survival response, because something's threatening. If we know that, and we understand its effect, in some ways, and the neuroscientists are affirming this with, you know, their studies of the brain, just the knowing of it, just the knowing of it, creates a new pathway in the mind, in the brain. And in, and in a way that, you know, so the Buddha said this 2,600 years ago, he just said it in a little different language. But essentially, the understanding of what an unwholesome state of mind does takes out the garbage by itself, right? We don't even have to take, we don't have to say, well, I don't want to have that unwholesome state of mind anymore, but, you know, good luck with that anyway, right? I'm never going to be angry again, right? Ha! Right? So it's not that the anger isn't going to come up. It's what's my relationship to it. Do I believe it? Do I believe I am angry? Or do I, do I understand this is a constellation of physical feelings, stories, and emotions? And can I pay attention to them in a way? And perhaps that anger is um, beneficial. Right? Because it moves us 
It moves us to action. But if we are not mindful of it, the nature of our action or the quality of our action is going to make more of a mess. But the anger that may come from injustice, you know, it, it makes sense. And yet, what are you going to do with it? What's your relationship to it? How will you act in relationship to that anger? So it's a, you know, it's a tricky place and it really requires self-possession. It really requires us to know the garbage, the, what's garbage and what's a jewel, right? Especially in that kind of mixed place. Thank you. When you were talking, is that okay? Like an ice cream okay. cone. Is that working? It's like an ice cream cone. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. Okay. Uh, when you were talking about appropriate response, I suddenly flashed on an experience I had. Recently, um, I was around my sister's grandchild, who's 14 months old, and she's getting pretty good at the walking thing, but she falls a lot, and she was in a... Um, visiting, so she was in a new room, and she was taking tumbles all over the place. And you could see so clearly that if someone came in the room and saw her fall and said, oh no, she sobbed and wailed. Mm. But if nobody, you know, when her mom was there, or my, if she fell, she just kind of looked around and got up. And mm -hmm. it was such a teaching because it was so graphic how mm -hmm. much she she it wasn't just that she was alarmed that somebody said oh no she really started to suffer mm -hmm. she really cried genuinely mm -hmm. even though she wasn't any more in pain than the other time she fell so it i just keep thinking of her just getting up and that's this idea of a, to me she's my little buddha of appropriate right. response just yeah. get up yeah yeah and you know and that's beautiful thank you for that example um, and I think that even beyond knowing that with her and seeing how that is, that you can have a tremendous amount of compassion for us, you know, however old we are, that we've spent all of these years being conditioned by our culture, by other people's reactions, by our, you know, by what we've been told, by what we've been taught, by our peers, that our whole experience is so interconnected with everything else that's been happening in our, on our, in our country, our culture, our planet, our world, that all of this conditioning and all of these habitual responses, some of which are not so helpful and maybe even harmful, have been conditioned in. I was thinking this morning, for instance, or maybe it was yesterday morning, I forget, but I was thinking about how, I was thinking about Martin Luther King and how, uh, how remarkable it is that someone in our country was actually um, praised or valued for nonviolent philosophy. And how remarkable that is, because if you look at our country, mostly our heroes are military, right? So we've grown up with that. We've grown up with, with that kind of um, conditioning and that kind of story. 
And we know that, you know, every time the brain, you, uh, you know, every time we think something, we can either reinforce a neural pathway or we build a new one if it's a new thought. And so we've been, we've been reinforcing those neural pathways. You know, every time we hear it on the radio, we see it on the, on the news, we, you know, we read it in a book, every, we hear it in school. So we can have a tremendous amount of compassion for this conditioned mind. And, and watching a child and seeing that they're like what John Locke called a tabula rasa, an empty slate, right? And how all of that conditioning gets, um, gets written on that empty slate, you know? And so here we are, right? However many years older we are than that child, we've taken on all of that conditioning in that period of time. Thank you. Thank you. Um, I, I wanted to come back to um, I wanted to come back to two th ice cream cone to two things. One is uh, the garbage, and then two is the compassion. Garbage and, and compassion. Garbage and compassion. Um, and uh, what I appreciated about the teaching today, what felt very freeing, was that there, there that nothing is garbage. That that this is. And, and really makes me want to cry. But anyway, thank you. And um, that what? That nothing. It makes me want to cry. What does? The, this this little bit of freedom that nothing is garbage. Oh. You know that mm -hmm. it is just observing, experiencing, and then surrounding. And I mean, however, um, <laughs> and that um, in relations with others, then maybe I can. And it's something I want. Um, is not to be so fearful of other people's anger or because it's because I know it and it's the same it's the same and I can be and I can maybe one day become compassionate and not fearful of other people's strong emotions um, but it just feels important that that, the, that it there not be garbage mm-hmm um, Thank you. Well, we all have different ways of expressing, right? So, um, it, yeah, because I didn't want to negate what, what he said. I was really kind of affirming what he said. Um, no, and I don't mean okay. it personally Great. at all. It's, I, mean, I, I mean it personally for me and not yeah. at all. These are yeah. things that were evoked yeah. in me yeah. and for which I'm grateful yeah. to have yeah. them evoked. Great, thank you, so, yeah. Yeah, and it's, a, and it's something that I think we continue to learn over and over and over and over again because we're so conditioned to believe that we're wrong for having an emotion that's a negative emotion. You know, and, you know, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a child of the 60s, I'm in the 1960s. <laughs> you know, and we had a lot of new age thoughts, you know, which was like, you know, look in the mirror and, you know, think, just think positive thoughts, you know, and you looked in the mirror and say, oh, there's a pimple, right? Uh, I like the shape of your nose. Oh, so-and-so has such a better nose than you, you know, so you had all of these negative thoughts and then the next thought that came up is you shouldn't have these thoughts, right? And, and so a lot of us are conditioned in that way, you know, and, and if you just think the right thoughts, your life is gonna be perfect. 
right? You'll have enough money, you'll have a partner, you'll get an apartment, you know, for nothing. You know, you just have to think the right thoughts. That's a lot of pressure, right? On, uh, because karma is so complex, right? Where we are is not a kind of direct result. Well, it is a direct result, but it, but it, uh, of what we think and say and do, but there's so many other aspects of karma in terms of our interconnectedness with everybody else that we can never really know. You know, people say, well, you know, I must have been a terrible person in a past life because I'm having a really hard time. No, it's, you know, you're a product of your times, you're a product of your culture, you're a product of so many things. So to blame ourselves for anything happening is not helpful. What is helpful is to have an intention to be as pure-hearted as you can possibly be which involves a lot. It's not, it's not a simple exercise, but, the, but we start with the intention, right? So if anger arises, can we not become so identified with it that we don't feel as if we have to act on it in that moment? Can we wait? Can we pause? And the practice naturally teaches us how to do that, right? But it's not, it's not by starting out saying, oh, I shouldn't feel this way, or this is terrible that I feel that way. So I'm really happy that you feel that freedom. And what it's like to feel that way is freedom. It is freedom to not feel as if, you know, I'm having these thoughts and they're terrible thoughts, so I must be a terrible person. It's, oh, look at that. I want to kill him. Okay, that's a thought as long as I don't go out and do it, right? I think it's a good idea. I can just see it as a thought. Thought, what my teacher used to say is a thought about your mother is not your mother, right? Yeah, thanks. Am I holding so it right? This is our last question. I just wanted to ask about um, fear and feeling like when I'm noticing emotions or thoughts or whatever, and then at the same time, uh, it, fear seems to come from another place. So if if I'm um, if our community has people that are filled with fear and that fear drives people to do things that are um, fear-based. I feel like, okay, well, I, I can control my own, or I can understand my own motivation and my own behavior, but fear is really um, something more strong and innate that drives people sometimes, and I'm wondering, um, I don't know, it doesn't really go away, so it's like part of our environment, we have to just deal with it, or I don't know. So, you know, you can't deal with other people's fear. No, I, I guess I'm watching it, and I'm, like, averse to it, and I, I just, yeah, I guess I'm just... Well, well, so the aversion, you can have some compassionate for your own aversion and compassionate for their fear, but it doesn't mean that you justify it or think it's okay, but you can have compassion for it, understanding the conditioned mind that produces it. it you know, these are all very, 
it's work. The, the practice is work because we're, we're, we, we're not used to being as discerning as the practice asks us to be. So, so we, we discern, oh, this is, a, this is a mind filled with fear, right? And yet, when, so when you have a mind filled with your own fear, how do you work with that? How do you relate to that? And so we can, we can ask that others control themselves in the same way. But they, but you know, we also, but we have compassion for the fact that that's not the conditioning of our culture. So if you're going to stay for um, our discussion afterwards, you know, that's probably, that's probably a good thing. <sighs> so uh, what I would recommend for, if you want to continue this practice, this particular foundation of mindfulness, which I think is really a key to practice and very helpful is that when you practice, when you do your daily practice to really um, pay attention first to the breath and allow the mind to really settle down and then just open awareness. So you're not having to scan to see what your mind state is, but just open your awareness and ask the question, what is the mood of the mind? It will present itself to you, even if it's confusion. So, and then during the day, if you find yourself tight, notice the story that's making you tight, and then notice the mind state that's behind that story. So a lot of the time when there's anger, if you look at the mind state, what you'll find is fear. There's a lot of fear in, in anger, but fear is the kind of imploding aversion and anger is the kind of exploding aversion. So, you'll, if, so you start to notice it. You start to notice your whole own habits with these mind states. And, and that's 95% um, that's of the journey, is just knowing how it is for you. So let's dedicate our practice to the benefit, the welfare, the happiness, the well-being and the awakening of all beings everywhere without exception. Sending our deepest wishes for the well-being of all, that all beings be safe from harm, happy and peaceful, healthy and strong, and live with ease. And I invite you to just uh, bring into your heart any beings that you feel would benefit from your loving kindness. And allow your heart to radiate out kindness and compassion to embrace these beings. And then embrace all of the beings in this room with your kindness with your wishes for their well-being. And realize as you do that, that you are also receiving the loving kindness of everyone in the room. May all beings be free from suffering and be free. Thank you.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.